to Explain Yourself listeners. On tonight's episode, we have Michael Zwick. He spent the early years of his career as a litigation attorney before realizing how much money was being left on the table as far as inheritance goes. So now he is an inheritance investigator who focuses on getting people what their loved ones have left to them. I invited him on hoping that he would have really good news for me, Annika, and he did not. No, he did not have good news for you or for me, unfortunately, but he did offer some really great advice for people who maybe have loved ones that have possibly left an inheritance behind. Um, If you are one of those people, let us know. Julie and I will happily befriend you. But in all seriousness, he did have some great advice for, um, you know, you maybe are being faced with a situation where you do have to look into the finances of somebody older in your family. Yes, I think we learned a lot about how I'm not always going to say it's the older generation that does this, but a lot of times talking about money and talking about property and value is a little bit taboo. So now that we're running into instances of trying to collect that and tracking down all of their bank accounts and login information and what they owned and what they owed, uh, Michael and his team make that a lot easier for everybody. Michael, we're so excited to have you. We talked a little bit about your journey, Annika and I did before we had you on, um, and we're very interested. I'm going to let you tell the story, though, and not spoil any secrets. But we like to start every episode off with a drink. What are you having tonight? I'm just having water. I know it sounds boring, but uh, just want to have something to keep hydrated and uh, keep the throat lubricated and uh, still be healthy. Well, that is fair. I also have my water. I have a LaCroix. This is coming to you live from about six hours after my second COVID vaccine. So don't want to push Bravo. the here. Annika, how about you? Um, so I was going to only have water as well because I was just feeling very thirsty today. I think I'm a little dehydrated. Um, but I did grab a uh, beer from the fridge from a local company, Casey Beer Co., which I spent several hours at this past weekend. It was very nice outside here in Kansas City. So I'm having their Pilsner, which is one of my favorites from them. We like to start at the very beginning when we talk about people's career journeys. So let's go way back and talk about what you first wanted to be when you were growing up. Um, I think like most boys, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Uh, That's, I think, baseball player astronaut. Um, And, you know, the typical thing, I think is like a little bit older, uh, a dream I kind of had was to actually own a record store. I am a big music fan and own you know, a used record store where you can talk to people who are really into finding little you know, gems or whatever that really appealed to me. Like you said, every young boy wants to be a professional baseball player. You are not our first male guest that has mentioned <laughs> they wanted to be a professional athlete. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> So records, was there like a particular record that you had growing up that kind of got you into that? I remember my dad had a record collection. I used to think it was so cool to like put them on the record machine and we would play them and listen to them. Um, I mean, I I grew up mostly as a classic rock fan. 
I grew up uh, 70s and 80s, so that was really kind of my wheelhouse and growing up in Detroit. Bob Seeger was and still is my number one. Uh, but, you know, all, all, all the greats, you know, the Beatles, Rolling Stones. As I got older, my tastes really diversified and uh, my tastes are all over the place now. Today, I went from listening to uh, Metallica to The Temptations. So what you're saying is there's still um, time for this to be your retirement plan? Uh, not if I want to make any money. <laughs> um, unfortunately, record stores are not a money-making proposition these days. Um, and I'm not sure that for retirement, I want to run any sort of brick and mortar operation. <laughs> but uh, in my dreams, that's, you know, if I could go back in time and uh, have been born maybe 20 years earlier, maybe I would have done it. In between there, in between being a, a professional baseball player and wanting to open a record store, there's a whole journey in there. And it kind of kicked off um, really with you going to law school, but before you went there, where did you go to college and what did you major in? So I went to Yeshiva University in New York City and I majored in economics, um, partly because that just seemed like a practical major to have. I didn't really know so much what I wanted. Uh, inertia kind of had me going to law school, not because I dreamed of being a lawyer. I just figured, well, I tried accounting and I hated that. I was not a science person, so medicine was out of the question. And law school just seemed like a logical thing to do. I didn't really know what a lawyer was. I just went because it just seemed like the thing to do. I wish there was a grander story of I wanted to save the world, but uh, no, sorry. <laughs> I love that you're like, the only logical option is a lawyer. Because <laughs> that makes so much sense to the average person. <laughs> so you get your bachelor's degree in economics, decide what else makes sense other than being a lawyer. Um, was there something in particular that you wanted to study in, in law? Like, was there a specific direction of law you wanted to go into? I was always attracted to litigation. That just seemed to be what I wanted to do, uh, mostly civil litigation. So in law school, though, you don't usually have a concept, major or concentration. Um, you, you can take certain classes in certain specialties, but there are also a lot of core requirements and also just some, some electives that I wanted to take that I just found were interesting. Uh, and frankly, by the time I got to my last semester, it was really just about finding the best schedule <laughs> so I could spend less time there. It was really, again, I guess, a logic or efficiency thing that I said, okay, you know what? I, I, I was working and I wanted to compact all my classes as much as I could so that I uh, could work as much as I could. So therefore, I really just took classes based on the schedule more than anything else. I love this because you're saying like it's the most effective thing, but you also started law school, you mentioned here, before you could even legally buy alcohol. So um, what was the rush? Um, it just seemed like the logical thing. Uh, growing up in a, you know, I guess middle class Jewish family in the suburbs, that way academics was the thing to do. You found a professional career. Uh, I don't regret it, but that was just kind of the thing to do. Went to college and then went on to do something else. Uh, the reason I, I started law school before I could drink was because I went to early admissions to college and I'm, I'm born later in the year 
I was born in October, so in class started in August, the first two months. Then I was in law school. I was not even 21 yet, uh, which made it a little awkward going out for drinks with my classmates. Uh, fortunately, I was able to sometimes show the bartender or the waiter waitress my my bar my law school ID and say, well, do you really think a law school would have someone who's not even 21 yet? And that usually what when the when the argument and I get myself whatever drink I needed. The fact that they were asking for like your driver's license instead of your law school ID is, you know, but that's fine. I mean, you got what you needed out of it. Exactly. <laughs> what we're learning about you, Michael, is that you're a very practical person. Um, I'm not sure if I necessarily say practical as it is. I like to look or have the ability to look at a situation and figure out that if my first choice is blocked, can I be creative and figure out another way around? And I think that's really helped me uh, professionally in my, in my work. So that is an interesting point because you made a very big pivot. And I want to talk about this in depth in a second, but I also want to mention it right now. You made a, a pivot from being a litigation attorney to a private investigator, <laughs> what was the roadblock with litigation that made you pivot? So part of it was I was a, let me back up. I, after law school, I, I went back, I returned to Michigan and I worked for a big firm for a little while. Uh, I got laid off because they lost a big client, which was fine because I was not very happy there. And I just hung my own shingle while I was looking for a job, I started to figure I may as well do a little work here and there just to pay some bills. And after a while, it got to the point that I was busy enough that I just stopped looking for a job because I was happy working for myself and was making enough money to justify just not going to work for somebody else. Because I knew all along I wanted to be my own boss. I always, even in law school, I envisioned having my own firm. Uh, so for a few years, I, a few years, <clears throat> excuse me, I was a one-man operation. I don't think I was a good lawyer, uh, but I wasn't, uh, you know, blazing any trails. I wasn't, uh, you know, setting the world on fire. I was just going about doing my thing and uh, doing mostly civil litigation, did criminal defense, did some bankruptcy. Um, civil litigation, which was the thing I really wanted to do in the beginning, I found I enjoyed the least because I found there was just so much butting heads and fighting and frankly, a lot of dishonesty. Uh, there wasn't the collegiality uh, among litigators that I've heard there used to be. And the funny thing is I actually did not want to do criminal defense when I first got into law, but I really found it wound up enjoying it. Uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. So how I got to being a private investigator was that 20 years ago, actually just last week, uh, an old friend and I started a business because we had located this concept that there's all this money sitting in government treasuries waiting to be claimed. Um, right now, 20 years later, there's probably about $60 billion sitting in state uh, treasuries, not to mention all money sitting in all these other government agencies of counties and cities and other state, federal and state agencies and courts just sitting there that the owners either don't know about or um, know about, but they don't know how to get it. So we started a little business and it was really just a side hustle before a side hustle was a thing. And uh, I had my law practice. He had his own little business. And we actually brought a third person who was a teacher. And for a while, all three of us were just doing it as a side business. 
And in order to do the work that we do in some states, you need to be licensed as a private investigator. So I got a private investigator license. I have so many questions right now. But the <laughs> first thing that comes to mind is, um, how did you figure this out? Cause it's not like you just sat down on your computer and said, hey, Google, where's all the money? How did you find out that all of this money is just out there waiting for some sort of claim to come through? So really it was, my partner was watching, I don't know if it was Nightline or 2020 or one of those evening news programs that talked about this thing called that there was money out there. And he just went on to uh, State of Michigan website. He, he started putting in names of people he knew and he found uh, money for somebody. And this person said to him, well, that's great. What do I owe you? And he said, well, what do you want to, what do I owe you? Uh, just did his favor. I said, no, you, you did a service for me. You found me $2,000. I should give you something. And he's came to me and says, do you think we could do something with this? Um, you know, he knew how to do sales. I was, I knew how to do some legal work uh, and knew, knew how to deal with bureaucracy a little more. So we just started doing that for a while. We were just doing Michigan. After all, we wound up branching out into a whole bunch of different states and other government agencies. So it, it was a lot of uh, learning on the fly. You know, we did not have another asset recovery company that we worked for. So we really just were making it up as we went along, um, which in some ways is actually kind of good because we weren't biased by the practices that somebody else had. We were able to figure it out on our own. On the other hand, we had to figure it out on our own, which didn't always make things so easy. So you mentioned that you guys were doing this as kind of a side hustle. So at what point did it get grow to the point where you guys felt comfortable leaving your full-time jobs to actually convert this into your mainstream of income? It was probably after about two years, uh, around the time that I was getting married to my wife and I was working just crazy hours. I was working because I was struggling both my law practice and this business. And I'd say at least two night, two, three nights a week, out, two, three nights a week, out as at the office till 10, 10 at night. Um, and this is in Michigan where it's not like New York City or San Francisco where working till 10 or 11 o'clock at night in law office is standard. And my wife asked me, is this going to be your, this is going to be what our marriage is going to be like. Uh, the irony of it is that I'm usually the one who's done with work now by six o'clock and she's the one who's working till 10 o'clock at night um, as a, she's a wellness coach. So she's the one who's actually working much later hours than I am. Um, so it got to the point where we saw that a, it was both a matter of, I just couldn't keep burning the candle at both ends like that if I wanted to be married. And second, we saw the potential for it if we all, the three of us, did it as full-time positions. So we all basically closed up. We've still for another year or two worked from our locations that we already had. I worked from the office that I was subletting. Uh, my two partners worked from home. And then it was about two years later that we actually started getting started with an office and getting employees. I love the state line or 2020, whatever it was, kind of set this path in motion, which I love because I'm pretty religious to all of those late night shows. So I hope I also get an idea to pop into my head. Um, but were you guys kind of the first of your kind out there? Is there, were there other services like this when you first started? There were a few others. We know in Michigan that there were two, two other businesses 
in my business. I mean, I, we wound up learning later there were one person operations. Uh, but when we first started, my partner asked the person who runs the Michigan office, uh, do you have any advice for us? And he says, you know, stick to the lower dollar amounts because if you go above sort of dollar amount, the quote, big boys will, will eat you alive. Um, and about, it was around that 2003, 2004, when we started growing that we realized, well, we are the big boys. All of a sudden we were getting all these big contracts and we were having seen no competition. It turns out our competition was really two separate individuals who are working for themselves, who just, I guess, retired and just walked away from it. And we happened to just be in the right, sp right spot at the right time where all of a sudden all this money was pouring in and we were the first one. So there were a few companies that have to, every so often I meet someone who's like, yeah, I was doing back in the eighties when we had to have stacks of phone books to find people. Whereas when we got into it, we were able to use uh, databases that we could subscribe to and just log into and to find people and, and find other information about people. So it was a totally different game pre-internet than from what I hear. Uh, and uh, so we had some competition, but we quickly became one of the biggest ones really anywhere. I love that they gave you such terrible advice off the bat. Like, thanks a bunch. Now he, I don't think he meant to give us bad advice. I think he just, I think he had this perspective of here are these two guys who were just killing it relative to what he saw. And we were these new kids on the block. Um, and just, you know, whatever. I think it was actually good that we, in the very beginning, we were dealing with smaller stuff where the stakes were, were lower because we made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so uh, so it, it wasn't as, uh, the, the risk wasn't as big as we were learning in the beginning. So from the perspective of somebody say that I have money that I have not claimed, it's waiting for me, maybe I didn't know. Where does is that money coming from? Is it like... I know you mentioned inheritances, but is there anything else like real estate or, and how does it end up in the government's hands? So usually, first of all, the model of that business, which is the first of two businesses that we have, um, is we find the money, then go find the people. We don't usually take calls from people to find money for them. Uh, so every state has laws that says that if you have, um, if someone's, holding assets for somebody else and a certain amount of time has passed where they haven't heard from the owner, the holder of the asset has to turn over to the state. So that, that goes for uh, bank accounts, um, uncashed checks, stocks, life insurance policies, really any assets. So, um, and then the laws they turn over to the state where the person last lived. So for example, if when I left in New York to re after law school to return to Michigan, uh, and I left money behind in my, you know, Chase Chase Manhattan Bank account, and I left a few hundred dollars behind, and I just forgot about it. Chase Manhattan Bank would be obligated to turn that money over to the state for me after a certain period of time. Um, so that's really where the money comes from. And uh, you know, like I said, so that that's for the most part, it's we we find the money, and then find the people. Every so often, we we after, as we grew. We would get major corporations, you know, Fortune 500 companies and major national nonprofits and universities that would actually call us and say, can you become our asset finder for us? Where are they losing their assets? So here's the analogy that I like to give. Okay. When you eat popcorn, if you eat one piece at a time, you'll probably get it all in your mouth. You won't have any crumbs. But if you're shoveling into your mouth, like, you know, like hand over hand, 
you're probably going to drop crumbs on the floor. Okay. You and I will work, you know, the n- number of checks that you and I might get is like eating that one piece of popcorn. It's, it's we don't, we're not going to lose that one check we get every so often. Take, for example, a Fortune 100 company that does $50 billion a year in revenue. That's a billion with a B. Uh, they're getting in probably thousands of checks a week. So a certain number of those are just going to be that those crumbs of popcorn that fall on the floor. Now, it may sound crazy that they're losing track of a $100,000 check, but if you think about $100,000 relative to $50 billion, it's really, it's not even a rounding error for them. Karen in accounting has lost it under the stack of papers. I know exactly what my office desk looks like. And it's like, you got a stack of papers. You accidentally lose a check in there. You know, it yeah. happens. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and imagine, like I said, these, you know, for these companies, we find $100,000 here or there. It's not going to change their their stock price. They're not going to change very much, but they still want to be responsible stewards of the company. And obviously for companies like ours, getting you know hundred thousand dollars for them is, is something meaningful to us so you mentioned that you guys aren't actively seeking or clients aren't actively seeking you guys out necessarily so it's not like in the private investigator sense i'm not, I'm not calling to hire you but you're seeking these people out who have lost this money or don't know that they lost this money so when you when you get a hold of them, is it like, hey, surprise, we found $500 in your name? Like, what does that process look like? And to so, add on to that, how do you make it not sound like a scam? Okay, so <laughs> I, I do want to uh, kind of address something you said first before you got to the question, which is that we, like I said, we have a second company, which is really the focus of my work these days called Inherit More. And what Inherit More does, actually, we work with uh, people who have lost loved ones to actually track down their inheritance. So there we are getting phone calls and we welcome those calls um, because that is where we're starting. We're doing a whole a holistic search for everything the person owns um, as opposed to the targeted stuff, which is in the first part. Uh, to answer, so go back to your question as to how, how they um, people receive our, our sales pitches or our calls. We've long said that our biggest competition is not on the company, it's skepticism, because we realize that it is too good to be true. So we made a very concerted effort back in the late 2000s to take certain steps to improve our the image that we are presenting. One is we made sure to revamp our website so that it looks nice and professional. We tout the fact that we um, have all the professional licenses. I'm one of three attorneys on our staff. We have a you know, PI license that we're licensed and bonded. We have an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau. We've run, won a bunch of different awards. We've had some very positive uh, publicity. So when we send an agreement to somebody, they're getting it on our you know, very nice stationery with our logo. Uh, it's, it usually has a glossy reprint of a Washington Post article in which we were favorably mentioned. So we welcome that if, if, the, if the case is big enough, we, depending on where the people are and how much money is at stake, we'll gladly go to meet with them. Uh, so there have been times where I've hopped on a plane and you know, flown from Detroit down to Fort Lauderdale just to meet someone for lunch, just so they could see me in person and realize that we're legitimate. So uh, um, we have had to overcome it, but I think now we've, not that we are a household name, but we at least have a brand that if people look into us, they'll see that, we're, that we are legitimate. Like you said, you started out reaching out to 
people and then started working with companies. And now you have the second leg, which is inherit more. When did you decide that you wanted to add that additional piece to your company? So what happened was about a year and a half ago, uh, one of our uh, non major nonprofit clients came to us and said, we got this letter from a court in Ohio that some woman died and left her entire estate to us. Problem is we know nothing about her. We didn't do an estate planning with her. We've never heard from her. Yeah, she made a few donations here and there over the years, but we don't know anything about her. Can you look into finding her assets? Uh, it was the reverse of our usual process, but we said, you know, it's a good client. We'll look into it. And as I started to just drop the little profile of this uh, person, I realized, yeah, she actually left a good amount behind. So the entrepreneurial uh, bulb went on my head and I started to talk to a lot of probate attorneys that I knew and said, is this a common occurrence where the beneficiaries of an estate uh, need help getting their assets out because they don't know about it or because they don't have the time or because just other things are getting in the way. And so many attorneys said, there needs to be a service like that out there uh, because uh, the, the attorneys usually handle the filing the paperwork to, to start the probate proceedings in court and to get the, um, the executor or what are called letters of authority. But then usually it's at that point, it's the client's responsibility to go out and get, you know, figure out what all the assets are and then deal with all the bureaucracy and to sell them off or transfer them. And it can be a very time and emotion sucking experience, especially for those who've just lost a loved one. And for the most part, people who, who have lost loved ones tend to be people who are losing parents. And with the average death age around 75 to 80 years old, the people with their kids tend to be people who have their own kids and are kind of what they call the sandwich generation, that they have to deal with their own kids, they got to deal with their parents, and they have jobs and they have very busy lives. So we created Inherit More to address all of that and to relieve that burden of, from people. Are these clients generally people who their parents who have passed away didn't necessarily set up their finances to be handled after their deaths? Or is it they just have everything in so many different places that the kids just don't know where it's all at? It's kind of both. Um, one of the things we have found is that people, there are people who would rather discuss their sex life on Facebook than they would discuss their finances with their most trust, you know, closest relatives. Uh, people, some people, a lot of them are, I should say, are very skittish about discussing death, about sharing aspects of their finances. They want to people how much they own, stuff like that. It feels very personal. Um, so we, so that's the, one of the problems is that people just aren't leaving behind information. But sometimes even if people have the information as to what assets are out there, they're still all the time and stress that goes into dealing with the bureaucracies of dealing with the banks and the insurance companies and brokerage firms or whatever to get all the assets transferred from the decedent's name to the heirs. So it's not necessarily that Grandpa Greg had like a secret stash of money that nobody knew about and was a secret millionaire. It's just, you know, they're busy or that nobody talked about the finances to begin with. Well, we hope when we take on a case that we find that uh, that he wasn't a millionaire, we find that money. Um, but uh, yeah, typically, I think it, I don't think there is a matter of 
necessarily hiding things. It was just a, I think there's a difference between hiding something and not, and just not wanting to communicate about it. Um, and I think that's more the latter of people who just didn't want to communicate. Um, I'll say my father is 85 years old and he's a CPA. So he, he understands all of what you need to know about record keeping and, and uh, you know, knowing where assets are. And uh, it took me a while to tell him, hey, dad, you know, I need to, I don't need to know how much assets are worth. Just tell me, just leave me a, give me a list of what your assets are. You know, for example, if you've got an account at Schwab, just list that with the account number. So I can't access it while you're still around. And initially his response was, I know where everything is. To which I said, that's great, but that's not gonna help me very much when, uh, when I need to get my hands on it. So uh, he wound up writing down, but even so, you know, he's still active in investing and, and uh, working. So he sometimes, you know, uh, winds up on a board and gets some stock. And, you know, it's, it's a constant updating that, you know, a good estate planning attorney will tell you that they make sure on a regular basis every year or two to sit down with their clients and say, hey, let's discuss what you have and uh, make sure we have an inventory of it all. But a lot of people don't do that. You mentioned like a estate planning attorney. If somebody has a good estate plan attorney and a plan in place, does that help not having to enlist your services? Because in theory, everything should check out or do they just handle some more red tape stuff and you still having to find your company step in? It depends on the type of, if you have a really, really good estate plan where you have a trust that everything was put in, was transfer the trust, but first of all, there is always the garbage in, garbage out that you only have in the estate what the person told their attorney they own. Um, one of the misconceptions that there is, or there are two, that they're kind of the two sides of the same coin. One is that people think, oh, if there's a will, that should solve everything. And what people fail to realize is that wills generally do not have inventories of everybody's assets. They might say, they might happen to mention certain certain assets such as, I wanna leave my Pepsi Cola stock to this person, or I wanna leave my jewelry collection to that person. But generally people do not list in their wills all their assets or even anywhere near all of their assets. The other side of the coin is people think if there wasn't a will that you know no one's gonna get anything. And that's not true. The main purpose of will is to say, here's who I want to get my stuff. If you don't have a will, every state has a law that says who will get that stuff. There is a clear language in, the, uh, in every single state that says who inherits if there is no will. You know, people need to realize that, that just as I always say, where there's no will, there's still a way. You mentioned earlier that you guys do this in several different states. So do the laws vary in each state and what kind of red tape do you guys run into or difficulties do you run into in trying to keep everything organized in each branch that you have? So in terms of the the first first business, uh, the laws are, it's more the procedures are different than the laws. Every Every state has their own set of rules. And that's one of the things we bring to the table when a large corporation need somebody to handle their asset funding across the country is they know we already we are already familiar with the procedures in so many different states we don't have you know we have over the years have developed these kind of you know cheat sheets that we have for pretty much every state as to here's here's what you need to have so this way we know 
what we need to put into the claim because every state has different requirements. And this way we know that we're getting in the right stuff so they don't kick it back and then we have to wait six months for it to be reviewed a second time. Uh, in terms of the other work uh, for inherit more, we don't uh, have much variance in terms of states. In terms, there are differences in state laws in terms of probate procedure, but that's more on the lawyers who are handling the states, not so much on us. So let's turn the notch to SAD for a little bit. Obviously, with that portion of the business over at Inherit More, you're often dealing with people, like you said, who are going through the grief of a loss. How does that kind of affect their ability to go through the process um, with you? I'm just going to put that very gently, but leave the floor open. What we tell people is we just need some information about the person and then we'll take over. But, you know, to kind of illustrate how paralyzing the or how stressful the, the situation can be. Um, when we started the company, I was talking to a friend of mine who's the rabbi of a large synagogue in the Detroit area. And he said, you know, as a, as a clergy, as someone who has counseled people who have passed away, um, you know, I, I was prepared for the emotional loss of my father. He says, it would hurt, but at least I knew what was coming. He said, nothing prepared me for the stress of dealing with probate. Um, and he says, I so much rather would have just been able to hand off. Yes, there, there still requires, at least in the beginning, some cooperation with the client to both get information about the, about the deceased. Um, if the deceased has recently passed away, we'd like to go into the house and look around and see what we can find because that might have, there might be account statements or whatever that will you know, tell us things or, or might just kind of tip, off us, tip us off to things. Um, but once we get that initial cooperation and we get some forms signed, they really don't have to do much or at all, which is part of what we're, the value we're providing is not just taking the time off, off their plates, but also the stress that they can sleep well at night, not dealing with this. They can focus on the reef. They can focus on their families, on their jobs. And we can take all that off their plate and also, frankly, most likely uncover more than they would because we've been doing, we've been in this line of work for so long. Yeah, that sounds like it's worth literally every penny. I would probably just give you the money that you find. <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I can't imagine as somebody who has to remind my mom of every single password she has every 30 days. Um, <laughs> there's no way I want to go through that. If you check out your LinkedIn, Michael, you will find a lot of videos talking about how to help people with their family's inheritances, just some tips and, and tricks for people on how to kind of deal with that process before they need to. You share interesting stories. You're super active on LinkedIn is what I'm trying to get at. How did you get started on LinkedIn and you kind of found yourself this little following on there as well. So I actually been on LinkedIn for, I don't even know how long, probably since not long after it launched. Uh, so I've been on it, but I wasn't too active on it because like I said, our first business, it was very much a don't call us, we'll call you type of business. So every so often I did want to have good contacts, but I also really saw LinkedIn at first as just being a nice virtual Rolodex, which I don't know if people under certain age listening to this know what a Rolodex is, but it's a list of contacts. It was a great way to 
keep in touch with people. And as people were moving jobs, I didn't have to keep track and update my my even my virtual phone book. They were they were doing it for me. If a friend of mine went from one job to another, I didn't have to update anything. I could just look up their name on LinkedIn and see, oh, they're now at so and so firm. Um, so I started getting active last year. A friend of mine uh, kind of threw down the gauntlet, and we were because we were talking about how to promote and get more visibility for our businesses. I was working on uh, launching Inherit More, and he said, you have so much information that most people don't know just sitting in your head. Why don't you share it? Why don't you start doing, you know, like we have another friend who, who he, he and I have that, that was doing these daily just videos explaining things. I said, okay, start doing that. So I started doing it and I said, okay, I'm doing it. And uh, I started doing videos every weekday. I probably for about seven months or so, pretty much every single workday I was doing about, about a one to one and a half minute video explaining various areas of uh, inheritance or probate law or something like that. After a while, I started getting into more written text, you know, spicing things up with just conversational stuff and uh, kind of found a whole bunch of people that we all enjoy each other's content uh, from all different kind of all different walks of life. One is a financial advisor, one does marketing, and we just kind of enjoy each other's content. Uh, partly because I don't I don't just sit there and say, hey, hire me. Uh, nobody, that's not going to work. I'm trying to let, let people know that I'm out there, that I like to think I'm a knowledgeable, interesting guy. Um, and uh, hopefully people see that and uh, see who I am. And when the need comes, they'll remember me. One of my favorite posts as I was scrolling through that made me laugh is your, it looks like it's from six days ago, but you talk about how you don't own any Apple pro products other than AirPods. You aren't on Clubhouse. You don't do TikTok, Instagram, or Snapchat, but you're caving and everyone else is doing polls. And there's, <laughs> there's a GIF that's a man just like swinging around a light pole. And I <laughs> literally laughed out loud when I saw that. Well, thank you. But you're really, really good at creating content on LinkedIn. So you should 100% get on Clubhouse. I'm sure you would do fantastic on there. Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, anybody who wants to uh, see me on LinkedIn, feel free to send follow or send me a connection request. I I accept pretty much all of them. Um, I, I like talking to people and getting to know people. Uh, I I will get on Clubhouse one of these days. Uh, right now, we are working on a uh, initiative within Inherit More. Maybe I should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, that we're going to second initiative of whole e-learning platform, where for people who might want to not necessarily hire us, but still need the resource guide because there really isn't a good resource guide out there. So we're working on a whole e-learning platform that we hopefully will roll out in the next few weeks and then once that gets done then um, you know because then we'll have both a service to offer as well as a commodity that people can buy and at that point i think we'll want to have even more exposure so um yeah, our marketing person that we hired to develop an air more has told me more than once you should still get on clubhouse <laughs> um, and maybe and my, I'm also kind of hoping that sooner or later Clubhouse will be on Android uh, devices. Well, we do have a couple of listener questions come in. What's the most helpful thing that 
they can or their parents can do to make everything a little bit less of a hassle to handle? The biggest thing is just to have a list of all the assets and update it every six months, year, whatever it is. And when I say assets, not just say, for example, uh, you know, Bank of America, but say like Bank of America checking accounts with the account number, you know, money market with the account number, stuff like that. So this way they have that. Um, so for the person also to jump through all the hoops to get it, but at least they'll know where everything is. Then I'm going to add on to that and implore if um, you do happen to take this great advice, invest in some sort of lockbox so you don't just have this floating around your house. I don't yes. know. You're not out there. Yes. And I would also add to uh, relative to something, Julie, you said before is to, is to uh, give some of your passwords to your devices because a lot of information is in emails and stuff like that. And if your computer is locked, someone can't get onto your emails. So, uh, you, you know, you want you want people to have passwords to, to get into your uh, various accounts and stuff like that. My manager just keeps a notebook on his desk that has just passwords written on the front of it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Maybe something a little bit more uh, lo locked up than that, though. <laughs> yeah, now, I think there are uh, apps or whatever you can store all your things, but then you still need the, the you still need the password to get into that app. <laughs> I am very interested in this question as well. What is the biggest sum of money that you guys have found for someone? So it's probably close to a million dollars. We've had a few times the very high six figures. Where was this money? <laughs> you know, what I'm thinking of was actually a somebody passed away and a couple passed away and they owned a whole bunch of different things. They own money market accounts and, and various um, equities, but they also, I remember just were about to close out the estates. We found out that they had owned a mobile home in another state and the, the value of the mobile home and the lot was about $80,000. So they just own stuff all over the place. So we like to close out every episode with a couple of fun questions that don't have to relate to your job. Um, Cause we want to leave your Thursday night without you having to think about work for the next day. So you mentioned in your bio that you have an extensive t-shirt collections, a lot of them being colleges. Um, how many do you think you have and what is your favorite? Okay, so in terms of how many I have altogether, it's probably 75, 80, and I'd say probably a good maybe 30 to 40 of them are from colleges. And I probably would have had more if it wasn't for COVID because I think of the, the trips I would have gone on. Um, you know, I was all excited that right before COVID hit, I was supposed to go, or as COVID hit, I was supposed to go to uh, Tucson for a conference. I was like, great, University of Arizona, sure I can get. Um, and so I would probably have more. My favorite t-shirt, hmm, that's uh, that's like asking me which my favorite child. Um, so I'd say it's probably one that I that I, I saw recently that, that I saw that relates to my work that I thought was very funny. And it says, polygamy. You can't have your Kate and Edith too. I wish you two would unmute so people would hear you laughing. <laughs> I Yes, but, but Julie and I literally are muted and cracking up right now. Um, 
<laughs> that is, I, where did you get that from? I just saw it on Amazon and I, and I just had to get it. And I actually, uh, relating back to the LinkedIn thing, I actually wound up using, utilizing it when I did a post about what happens if someone dies and they are married to more than one person. Uh, and I think it was probably the most popular video that I did. Oh, I can imagine the comments in that one. Yes. Okay, question for you on your t-shirts then. So I went to the University of Missouri. Do you have a Mizzou t-shirt? I do not. No, I think last time I was in Missouri was, well, not actually, it was only a few years ago, but I was in like St. Louis for a conference with my wife and didn't really have time to uh, go to a store and get a shirt. Julie's not going to even ask you if you have her college t-shirt because the answer is definitely no. What, what college is that? I went to a college right next to Mizzou called Central Methodist. Okay. You'd be surprised which ones that I have. So uh, my favorites are actually of the college ones tend to be the, the smaller off the beaten path ones because the, the big college ones I can buy anywhere. I can go to, you know, go, go to Walmart uh, and pick up one, but it's the ones where I got to go like into the college bookstore uh, so I've got, you know, University of North Carolina, Asheville, and a um, uh, small liberal arts college in Albion College in Albion, Michigan, which you probably never heard of. But uh, they actually were clients of ours. I went into the bookstore and uh, when I was meeting with treasurer and I went to the bookstore and I got myself a t-shirt. So I like the, the more off the beaten path ones than the, the big school ones. Well, man, if you ever find yourself in Fayette, Missouri, you think of me. I will. Maybe he'll go to a conference there this year. Who knows? You probably won't ever find yourself there, but that's fine. Um, Every so often when I'm, we're driving and I'll see a sign for school, I go, oh, got to stop again. And uh, um, we were in Deland, Florida, um, a number of months ago, and we were passing by Stetson University. I was like, oh, got to get a shirt. And unfortunately, because of COVID, their bookstore wasn't open that day. And I was, I was so bummed. You'll just have to go back. I will. Yes. <laughs> All right, so we ask every listener this question and it tends to stump them. So we need to know what your unpopular opinion is. Uh, besides the fact that I have uh, a irrational dislike for Apple products <laughs> and I should get over it. And part of it is because the early people I know who were, who were Apple users were so snooty about it that I just kind of associate it as no, I'm not joining. I don't want to join your club. You're too snooty. <laughs> so I don't know that that might be an unpopular opinion because I know other people are, are avid uh, Apple product users, but uh, I haven't gone there. I don't foresee ever going there. Except for your AirPods. Well, the AirPods were gifts. They're given to me. So I did not spend money on that. So not by choice. <laughs> right. Exactly. I would say that is an unpopular opinion because people are like diehard Apple fans. Like once you go Apple, you just cannot go back to Android. Well, the story I tell is that I, one of my best friends who I've known since we were in kindergarten was a avid Apple person. He, back when home computers came out, he worshiped Steve Jobs. He even worked for Apple for a while. And when I was in the market for laptop a few years ago, he says, oh, you should, you should get, a, uh, get, a, get, a, get a Mac. And I said, I don't want to get a Mac. I said, Apple people are, I'm not going to use the actual word I use, but I said, Apple, the Apple users tend to be really snooty. Uh, and I'm not going to say the word I used instead of snooty. And he says, but you, you don't understand. Apple products are so, they're such elegant products. And I said, 
you just proved my point. <laughs> I said, well, you use that word to describe computer. That just proves my point that you're a studio. <laughs> so um, yes, I, I know I've probably alienated some of your listeners and I apologize. These are the, my views do not represent the views of Annika or Julie. I uh, just want to make that clear. We appreciate the lawyer disclosure <laughs> for us. Well, that is all we have as far as question goes. We're so happy you came on. This was such a fun conversation. If anybody wants to learn more or connect with you, where can they find you? Well, like I said, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I think I think actually because I was one of the earlier users, I'm going to, while we're talking, I'm going to look up my, it is linkedin.com slash in slash Michaelsbeck. So it's really that easy. Um, pretty easy to find because my line says I'm the inheritance investigator. And you could also find that about us on uh, inheritmore.com or assetsinternational.com, either one of those. And feel free to reach out. Awesome. And we will also link all of that in the show notes for everybody as well. So thank you again for coming on. My pleasure. I've had a great time. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. You can find show notes for this episode on our website at explainyourselfpodcast.com. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast and on Twitter at explain underscore podcast for more behind the scenes info on our guests and Julie and I. Next week, we'll be back with an episode with Patty Negri. Patty is Hollywood's go-to psychic medium and good witch. So it's definitely an episode that you will want to tune in for. And per usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please go like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. You know that it helps us to grow to the show, get new listeners, and that way it's not just our moms listening. (laughs) 